Hello there. Thanks for listening to the Elevate Christian Church podcast. We exist as a church to connect people with God and each other. Today's message comes to us from our lead minister and preacher, Kevin Barton. We hope this inspires you, grows you, and challenges you in your faith and your walk with Jesus. Enjoy! We have been preaching through the book of John uh, in a series entitled Rediscover Jesus. Let me just uh, reframe that real quick for you. The reason we're doing that is because this, these past 12 months, uh, since, since last March, 11 months, uh, we have been so distracted uh, with the COVID virus, with the election, uh, with some of the uh, civil unrest and the social injustice uh, we've, we've all witnessed and, and seen uh, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter battles with people fighting and fussing and arguing, uh, and it has caused us collectively as a nation, and, and in more particular than that, as an uh, evangelical church, uh, to, to kind of lose our focus on how mighty, how wonderful, how life-sustaining Jesus is, and we just want to go back and rediscover that. And so to begin with this morning, we're in week six of this series. But to begin with this, this, to begin with this morning, uh, I want you to think about your past for just a second. And I want you to think about a time in your past when you were extremely thirsty. Uh, think about the thirstiest you've ever been. Well, a time when you would do almost anything uh, for a drink of water. I think, I've been thirsty a lot in my life, I think the thirstiest I've ever been was in high school. Uh, I grew up in northern Virginia, and uh, uh, contrary to popular belief, it does get hot there. And uh, it was a summer day, and we, I had a buddy of mine who had a level driveway, uh, and it was an asphalt driveway, so he had this uh, basketball goal, and all of us who liked basketball, we would go to his house on Saturdays, and we'd play pickup three-on-three. Well, this particular Saturday, it was hot. And I was on the, on the court for a long time. We kept winning. And so uh, when you win, you run it back and you bring the next three. And after about two and a half, three hours just being in the scorching hot sun, man, I was so, so thirsty. I mean, it, it was um, a, a thirst unlike anything I'd ever experienced. And I said to my friend, I said, hey, man, can, can I get a drink? And he said, yeah. If you don't want to, to get water out of the water hose, uh, you can go into the kitchen, and we've got some apple juice in there. Help yourself. And uh, my mouth began to literally water. I've never had that happen before. I've had it happen with food, uh, but I was, I was just that thirsty, and all I could think about was this ice-cold apple juice. And so I opened the refrigerator and grabbed the jar and opened it and turned it up, and on the second swig, I just spit out. I spit it out everywhere uh, because it tasted horrible, and I looked at the bottle, and it was not apple juice. It was actually apple cider vinegar, and so I had to clean up my, my mess, and I left my friend's house thirstier than when I entered into his house. Well, this morning, uh, John's going to direct us to this encounter that Jesus has with the woman at the well. It's a very well-known encounter in John's narrative. Um, and in the text itself, there's going to be a lot of talk about thirst and a lot of talk about quenching that thirst. And we're going to find out that the thirst that Jesus is talking about here is not a physical thirst, but it's the deep spiritual thirst that we all have built into our souls. 
And so it's a very long passage of Scripture, um, so I'm going to paraphrase some of it. I want to set the scene really quick. Uh, where we are in the gospel, Jesus and his disciples are on a road trip, okay? And they are going to leave uh, Judea, and they're going to head back to, to, to their home county, if you would, of Galilee. Now, in order to get from Judea to Galilee... They had to pass through a region known as Samaria. Uh, there, I'm going to show you a picture of a map there. Uh, Samaria, if you could, I, I've had two laser pointers and I've lost them both. Um, but you can see they're in Judea and they're trying to go north to Galilee. All right, well, the, the, the straightest line is to go right through Samaria uh, to get back home. But in that culture, the Jewish people despised the Samaritans. They wouldn't set foot. Uh, in their land, so they would walk all the way around Samaria uh, to, to get back home. This wasn't just like a, you know, you're in a car and you got to go a few miles out of the way. Uh, this is a, you're walking, and this is how much they despised the Samaritans, uh, all right? So <clears throat> they didn't like them at all. So everyone went around Samaria, but Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, I want to show you a pivotal verse. It's verse 4. I don't think he had a choice. Look at verse 4 of John chapter 4. And he, Jesus, had to pass through Samaria. Uh, we're going to witness a divine appointment. Jesus had to go through Samaria rather than around uh, because he had this appointment with this Samaritan woman who had a soul that was absolutely dry. It was just parched. She was an outsider looking in. And Jesus is going to go there on purpose to satisfy the thirst that this woman has. And I want to submit to you, I believe it's a thirst that everyone in here has. All of us uh, at some point in our lives have had this insatiable thirst that this world cannot quench. It's this longing that comes from deep down inside of our souls, and, and we are just so spiritually thirsty. Well, in the text, we're told that he arrives and he stops at a well. And the text tells us that he is tired and thirsty. Uh, it's in John chapter 4, and it's verses 7 through uh, 42. Uh, it's a very long passage of Scripture, so let me just set the scene. Uh, Jesus gets there. And he sends his disciples into town, and the Samaritan woman comes at noon. Uh, real quick, you've heard this a million times if you grew up in the church. Women didn't draw water at noon. They drew them in the morning when it was cool, and it was a social event. Uh, you would talk about the town gossip and what's going on in your village. Uh, but she would go at noon when no one was there uh, because she was marked as a, a, an outcast, uh, some kind of social pariah. Well, while she's there, Jesus just says to her, hey, can you give me a drink? And, and she says, you're, you're Jewish, and, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And she said, you don't have anything to draw water with. And then Jesus, I'm paraphrasing here, says, listen, uh, you're going to get a drink out of that well, and you're going to be thirsty again. If you knew who I was, you would ask me for living water. Water in which you will never thirst again. Now, of course, on this side of it, we know he's talking about uh, soul-quenching living water. And so she said, 
She said to him, uh, you know, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And, and then Jesus says, well, I'm the Messiah. I'm this guy that you've been hearing about. Uh, so go tell everyone and, and go tell your husband. And she says, well, sir, I don't have a husband. And in the text, uh, Jesus says, you're right. Uh, in fact, you've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is, is not your husband. And so she does a total red herring. She just wants to change the subject. The very next thing she says is, well, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And uh, your people worship in the temple in Jerusalem. We worship on the mountain, which is correct. She's totally diverting uh, the, the subject. And, and so they have this encounter. They have this interaction. Uh, Jesus uh, talks to her about living water. She goes back to her village. And she tells the people, hey, I found this guy. He's known, he, he knows everything about me. I think I've found uh, the Messiah. And then uh, we know the story. Many people come to a saving relationship uh, with Jesus Christ. Okay, you can go back and read it. It is a long passage of Scripture. Uh, but what I want to do is I want to pull three points out from the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And actually what I want to do is answer three questions this morning. Question number one is this, what kind of woman was this? What kind of woman had this encounter with Jesus? Question number two, what barriers did Jesus break down through this encounter? And then question number three, which is an often overlooked uh, detail to the narrative story itself is, what did this woman leave behind? So we're going to answer those three questions today. Let's go question number one. What kind of woman uh, was this? In other words, is this woman a villain or is this woman a victim? Is she kind of the, the villain in the story or is she the victim in the story? And this question stems from John chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, where Jesus says to her, after they have this talk about living water, he says to her, Go call your husband and come here. Verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands. And the one that you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. So was this woman a villain or was this woman a victim? My whole life when I've been taught this story uh, and, and read commentary on it, she is often painted as the villain of the story, okay? And so a lot of people look at this through these lenses about, about this particular woman. Hey, girl, you've had five husbands. You can't seem to keep a husband. And you're shacked up with the guy right now. You're not even married to him. You're living in sin. You've lived in sin your whole life. You can't keep a husband. You, you get around. You seem to find your self-worth and identity in men. It's all wrapped up in your beauty and your body. And we paint her as kind of a woman of the night, kind of a sleazy woman. And so we think to ourselves, these six men, the five husbands, and the poor schmuck that's with her now have all been hurt by this woman. And that she's in the spot she's in today because her heart is full of evil, fleshly, sexual intent. And so she's the villain. And that's kind of the view that I've been taught and I've held my whole life. But I want to offer you a different view 
Uh, our, our associate minister, Will, preached on this a couple of years ago and brought this to our attention. And, and I think it's worth talking about. Some say, no, this woman wasn't the villain in the story. She is actually the victim in the story. She's been passed around by all these men. They are the villains in the story. And she is the victim. And it makes a little bit of sense. When you begin to study that culture in those times, women were not allowed to file for divorce. Only men. And so those five divorces were not her idea. Uh, they were her husband's uh, idea, husband's plural. So then you got to ask the question, well, what's wrong with her? Why was this woman married like five times? There's a lot of speculation. One speculation is the, the black widow. Like she's the black widow. Like every man that she marries mysteriously ends up dead. We've got a lot of black widows throughout history and, and, and culture. I don't know if you know the name Blanche Taylor Moore. Uh, you, you may or you may not. She is the oldest inmate on death row. Uh, she's from North Carolina. And in 1986, uh, she was convicted of arsenic poisoning. She poisoned her boyfriend. She's also suspected in the death of her, one of her mother-in-law's. Her first husband died by poisoning, and her second husband almost died by poisoning. And so she's called the Black Widow. You don't want to have a relationship with, with her because you'll end up dead. Some say, well, maybe that's the Samaritan woman. Maybe she was the, the, the Black Widow. Uh, I, I, all her husbands ended up dead. I, I don't know. I doubt that's the case. But that is one possible reason for why she's been married five times. Another and maybe even more likely possibility is that this woman was a concubine. Now, we don't really have concubines here in our country, but let, let me tell you what a concubine was. A concubine was, was a second wife, basically. And she didn't have the rights of a wife. Uh, if I could just be brutally honest with, with you, she was kind of a sex slave uh, for, for men. Uh, they had their wives who had their children with them, but they had these other concubines who, who were basically just designed to, to pleasure these, uh, these men. So some say maybe she was a concubine and they're very easy to get rid of. You know, when you use them up, you just file a certificate of divorce and then she went from man to man to man uh, because if she didn't, she would be living on the street. A third and, and I think a more likely possibility to why she'd been married five times is perhaps she was barren. Perhaps she wasn't able to have children. Now, we may look at that and say, well, that, that's no reason to divorce a woman. But in that culture, a woman's, I want you to hear this, a woman's main value in that time, her main value depended on her ability to produce not just a child, but a male child to carry on the family name and to care for the family in years to come. And so if she was barren and she wasn't able to have children, more than one discontent husband could have divorced her. And so we don't know. And so we ask the question, was this woman the victim in the story or was this woman the villain of the story? And you know what my answer is? Yes. Yes. I think she was both. I think she was a victim and a villain. And I'll tell you why I think that. I think that because she was human, just like you and I. And I, something I want you to understand this morning is that we have all been victims and we have all been villains. 
There is not a person in this audience, not a person watching online, not a person that's ever been born that has not been victimized by another human being. Harsh words, broken promises, betrayal, hate, slander, abuse. We have all been victims of another person's sin. But I want to turn it around and say this. There's not a person in here who hasn't been a villain to another person, right? Every single one of us have hurt other people with our words, with our actions, with our sins. And I think she was both the victim and the villain because she was a human being just like you and I. And a very important thing to remember is this. Jesus came to save both the victim and the villain. Jesus came to save us all. Whether you're a victim or whether you're a villain, Jesus died for you. Jesus wants to offer you the same thing he offers her. Nourishment for her soul. Hydration for her spirit. Living, moving water. Second question. What barriers did Jesus break down here? Jesus is tearing a lot of walls down. Now, I think in the text, we, we see some major barriers coming down. Um, there's three of them I want to point out to you. The first one is this. I think G Jesus tore down the racial barrier. He tore down the racial barrier. Look at verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John gives us this little detail in the parentheses here. For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. They wouldn't even look them in the eye. They wouldn't speak to them. And so Jesus, I believe, is breaking a huge racial barrier here because Jews didn't associate with Samaritans. And let me tell you why. Samaritans were Jewish. But then they begin to intermarry with pagans and they begin to, to kind of, their, their worship kind of got flawed and they, and, and they were viewed as racially inferior by the Jews. If I could be quite frank with you, they were viewed as half-breeds. The Jewish people called them that. They were social outcasts. They were racially impure. And so Jesus is at the well and he's asking for her to give him a drink from her jar. The only thing I can compare it to uh, today in modern history and modern culture would be the civil rights movement uh, when there was a time of segregation, when you had uh, black water fountains and white water fountains and you segregated the people. It would be like a, ma a white male in that era going to a water fountain that's for black people only and asking a black lady to fill up her canteen and him drink out of it. This is what we're dealing with here. And so what she's saying is, hey, why are you even talking to me? You're Jewish. And I know what Jews think, think of us. They think of us as half-breeds. They think of us as racially impure. And you're crossing this huge barrier here. And I would like to say this. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you flat out. There is absolutely no place for racism in the kingdom of God. None. Absolutely none. So... <clears throat> I'm a creationist. I believe that God created the earth in several in seven literal days. Um, but there are a lot of people who are evolutionists. It, it, it shouldn't surprise you that I don't believe in evolution. Uh, but, you know, evolution 
supports racism? Are you tracking? Do you understand that? Evolution promotes racism, that somehow a particular race is more enlightened and more evolved than other races. So think about Hitler and the Nazi party. Uh, you know, they thought that they were more evolved and that the Jews were subhuman. Think about slavery here in America for, for decades and decades. But Jesus doesn't do that. He never sees the color of a person's skin. He only sees the condition of their sin. And so he breaks this ethnocentric view that a lot of us still struggle with today. And I think I want you to understand this. The people that we come in contact with in our lives come in all different shapes, all different sizes, but they also come in all different shades. And here's what we have in common. None of us have a soul that has color. We all have the same soul. We are all fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God himself. And so Jesus breaks this barrier and says, listen, I don't see you as a Samaritan. I see you as a lost sheep that has a soul, a soul that is thirsty for something more. So he breaks the racial barrier, but he also breaks the gender barrier here. Verse 9, the same verse we just read. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? Don't miss this. A woman of Samaria. I cannot overstate, overemphasize how women were treated during this time frame. They were not treated as people. They were property. Women were second-class citizens. Men didn't even talk to women on the streets, particularly teachers, rabbis. They weren't, by the law, they weren't allowed to talk to women. And so Jesus says, hey, I'm a woman. Not only am I a woman, I'm considered an unclean Samaritan woman. Why are you even talking to me? But you know, as I do, Jesus often does what others refuse to do. He talked to her. He ministered to her. And he revealed crucial parts of his identity to her. You know, she's the first person that he tells, hey, I am the Messiah. She's the first person that Jesus reveals that to. Women were so oppressed during this time period. And Jesus pushes that barrier down. And and I want to tell you, man, I am glad he did that. And here's why. I've got two daughters of my own. My daughter, Reagan, who is 15 years old. And my daughter, Hazel, who is seven years old. Lindy, my my wife, Lindy, and I, we work very hard to instill in both of these girls that they can do anything they set their minds to. We want them to be independent. We want them to reach for the stars. We want them to know that they can succeed in life. We want them to know that they're not defined by what some punk boy thinks about them. But rather, they're defined by a God who loves them and who fearfully and wonderfully made them, who knit them together in their mother's womb, and that they are so valuable. They are just as valuable as any man who ever walked this planet. And so Jesus breaks this gender barrier down. And later, just just in passing, I want you to see this, the Apostle Paul builds on this a little bit in his letter to the Galatian church where he says this, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew or Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
So he breaks the racial barrier. He breaks the gender barrier. And then he breaks the religious barrier or the denominational barrier, if you will. Look at uh, verse 20 of John chapter 4. She says, well, our fathers worshiped on this mountain over here, but you guys worship down in Jerusalem. That's the place that you say we ought to worship. And so what she is essentially saying is that, hey, Jews worship God in Jerusalem. We worship God on the mountain. We worship God in different areas and in different ways. And I want you to notice Jesus' answer in verses 23 and 24. He says, the hour is coming. In fact, it is here now. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. See, he's breaking down these religious denominational barriers. And I got to thinking when I was studying this week uh, for this message, what would happen if all evangelical churches joined forces? Think about that. In Paulding County, the county which this church is in, if you're watching online, the, church, the county we live in, uh, there are 78 churches. Well, as of 2019, COVID has probably taken some of those away. But there's roughly 78 churches in Paulding County consisting of 30,000 God-fearing Christian people. What if we were all one church? What if we all said, man, we, we all just love Jesus. We want to worship him in spirit and truth. Think about what we could accomplish in Paulding County. See, Jesus came to tore down, tear down these barriers, race barriers, gender barriers, denominational barriers. And what I want you to understand this morning is this. It doesn't matter whether you're a victim or a villain. It doesn't matter whether you're black or white. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female. It doesn't matter whether you go to a Christian church, a Baptist church, or a Methodist church. We all have the same thing in common. We are so thirsty. And the world has offered us a drink that will not quench our souls. And it leaves us dry and empty. The world offers this dirty, stagnant water full of death and disease. The prophet Jeremiah alludes to this in Jeremiah 2.13 where he says this, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed or dugged out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water, that hold no water. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm offering living, moving, healing, soul-quenching water that satisfies your very spirit. I want to show you two, two, ver- two passages of Scripture, John 4, 13 and 14. This is the encounter we're in right now. Jesus said to her, everyone drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks <clears throat> of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become a spring of water welling up into eternal life. And then go a couple chapters over, John chapter 7, verse 38. Jesus says this, Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow, now don't miss this word, rivers of living water. Jesus didn't promise that you'd have a trickle that would flow from from you or a stream. He promised a river. 
If we could get our minds around this, that the Holy Spirit of God is like a mighty rushing river, a life-giving river to us and to those around us. The Amazon River is a, a pretty impressive, mighty river. Um, its origin begins above the freeze line in the Andes Mountains. And there you just have these little trickles of water that spring up from the frozen ground as they melt and they begin to flow down the mountain. Well, one stream flows into another stream and into another stream until this majestic river is formed. And as the Amazon flows, it picks up uh, more speed and more power. It flows 3,600 miles until it empties um, into the Atlantic Ocean. Here's what's interesting. You know how fast it's flowing when it reaches the Atlantic Ocean? It's flowing at a rate of 1.4 million gallons per second. It has such force that it pushes fresh water 60 miles out into the Atlantic Ocean. That's how powerful this river is. And I love that because there's this beautiful illustration in the, in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel. I, I encourage you to read Ezekiel 47 uh, this week. But in Ezekiel chapter 47, God's talking through the prophet Ezekiel, and he says, Ezekiel, I want you to look at my temple. And out of my temple, there's going to be water that starts to flow, and it's going to head south. And he says, Ezekiel, I want you to walk a quarter mile from the temple. And where you see that water flowing, I want you to get in the water. And so he gets in the water, and the water is up to his ankles. And then God says, Ezekiel, I want you to walk another quarter of a mile and get in the water. And he walks another quarter of a mile, and he gets into the water, and it's now up to his knees. And he says, Ezekiel, walk another quarter of a mile and get in. And he gets in, and it's up to his waist. And he says, walk another quarter of a mile and get in. And he gets in, and it's over his head. And, and, and the Scripture says he can't traverse it because it's, it's so flowing. It's so powerful. It's so mighty. So it goes from ankle to knee to waist to over his head. And here's what's interesting. Do you know where the river's flowing to? It's flowing out of the temple south down to the Dead Sea. Now, if you don't know anything about the Dead Sea, it's called the Dead Sea for a very specific reason. Nothing can live in there. It is so concentrated with salt. You've probably seen videos. You can lay on the Dead Sea and float. Uh, that Nothing can live in the Dead Sea. Well, this water that's flowing out of the temple that's getting deeper and deeper and deeper and more powerful as it flows, actually in the text, flows into the Dead Sea and it pushes all that dead stagnant water out and every species of fish are swimming around and trees and flowers and grass pop up. And the illustration is this, this water made something that was dead alive. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. This is the picture he's trying to get across to us. We were dead like the Dead Sea. Then Jesus flows into our lives and we're alive. But in order to receive this living water, Jesus would, would instruct us that we have to leave something behind. So I want to answer the, the last question. What did this woman leave behind? <clears throat> we, we often miss this. I think my battery might be going out. Can you guys hear me okay? Okay. <clears throat> what did this woman leave behind? We miss this. I've studied this my whole life, and, and I don't know how I've jumped over verse 28. 
after she finds out who Jesus is and what he, what he offers, she simply says this. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town. Don't overlook this verse. She hears the good news of Jesus, the, the life-giving, soul-cleansing water, and she hurries to tell the people of her village, but she leaves her old water jars behind. She doesn't need them anymore. And I want you to see the beautiful symbolism here. You and I must leave those old water jars behind. Those things in which we thought would bring us joy and life only to dry us out and parch our souls. We need to leave those behind and rely on Jesus and Jesus alone to nourish our souls. And so for some of you, I mean, it looks different for everybody, right? For some of you, it's leaving those old relationships behind that are just sucking you dry, that are just depleting you. For some of you, it's leaving the, the, the addictions, the jars of addictions behind. Stop going to the well of self-medication to feel better for an hour or two and, and, and then feel terrible. And where you have the, the, the law of increased demand and uh, diminishing returns set in. For some, it's leaving those old habits behind. For a lot of us, it's leaving our pride behind. We need to come to the realization that true life is not found in these things. True life is only found in Jesus Christ. And so the question I would ask you to wrestle with this week and I hope you do wrestle with it. I hope it kind of bounces around your mind and it kind of penetrates your heart is, is this. What do you need <clears throat> to put in your rearview mirror? In other words, what jars do you need to leave behind? Where have you been going to get nourishment for your soul other than, than God himself? Because I'm going to tell you, you're going to end up empty. You're going to end up dry. I hope you wrestle with that this week. What jars do I need to leave behind? And I hope you come to Jesus, the living water. If you haven't already, I hope you let him cleanse your soul. I hope you understand that it takes faith to trust Jesus to provide life to your soul. It goes against reason a little bit, right? There's a letter that was actually found in a baking powder can that was wired to, the, to a handle of an old pump. Uh, that offered the only hope of drinking water on the very long and seldom used trail uh, across Nevada's Armagosa Desert. All right, and so people would travel and there was nowhere to get uh, a drink, but there was this old pump handle. <clears throat> and attached to it with a wire was a baking soda can with a note in it. And I want to read you the, the note. It's an old note. Quote, this pump is all right as of June 1932. I put a new sucker washer into it, and it ought to last for years. But the washer dries out, and the pump has to be primed. Well, under the white rock behind you, I buried a bottle of water out of the sun, and it's corked up. Now, there's just enough water to prime the pump. And the note said, you're going to want to drink, take a drink of the water first because I understand that you're so thirsty, but you can't do that because you need every drop of that water to pour down and get that washer wet and loosen and prime that pump. And when you do that, you start to, to pump that thing 
with all of your might, and I promise you, you will get water. This is a well that has never run dry. Have faith. And once you get watered up, fill this bottle back up and put it under the rock you found for the next person passing by. And it was actually signed by a man who called himself Desert Pete. Do we have that kind of faith? Can we leave human reasoning behind and say, man, these things that I've tried to quench this thirst to find purpose are are actually doing the opposite? Do, Do we have enough faith to trust Jesus to pour living water and change our life so that we can begin to pour living water into other people? Will you leave your old jars behind, whether you're a victim or a villain, whether you're black or white, whether you're male or female? Will you leave your old way of life behind and let Jesus offer you living water? We hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast today. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate or partner with us in what God is doing here, check out our website at elevatecc.com. Until next time, God bless you and thanks again.